Chapter Ten, Section Seven of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One by Karl Marx, translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part Three: The Production of Absolute Surplus Value. Chapter Ten: The Working Day. Section Seven: The Struggle for the Normal Working Day. Reaction of the English Factory Acts on Other Countries. The reader will bear in mind that the production of surplus value, or the extraction of surplus labor, is the specific end and aim, the sum and substance, of capitalist production, quite apart from any changes in the mode of production which may arise from the subordination of labor to capital. He will remember that as far as we have at present gone, only the independent laborer, and therefore only the laborer legally qualified to act for himself, enters as a vendor of a commodity into a contract with the capitalist. If, therefore, in our historical sketch, on the one hand, modern industry, on the other, the labor of those who are physically and legally minors play important parts, the former was to us only a special department, and the latter only a specially striking example of labor exploitation, without, however, anticipating the subsequent development of our inquiry from the mere connection of the historic facts before us, it follows, First, the passion of capital for an unlimited and reckless extension of the working day is first gratified in the industries earliest revolutionized by water-power, steam, and machinery, in those first creations of the modern mode of production, cotton, wool, flax, and silk-spinning, and weaving, the changes in the material mode of production and the corresponding changes in the social relations of the producers gave rise first to an extravagance beyond all bounds, and then, in opposition to this, called forth a control on the part of society which legally limits, regulates, and makes uniform the working day and its pauses. Footnote. Quote, the conduct of each of these classes, capitalists and workmen, has been the result of the relative situation in which they have been placed. End of quote. Reports, etc., for 31st October, 1848, page 113. End of footnote. This control appears, therefore, during the first half of the 19th century simply as exceptional legislation. Footnote. Quote, the employments placed under restriction were connected with the manufacture of textile fabrics by the aid of steam or water power. There were two conditions to which an employment must be subject to cause it to be inspected viz. the use of steam or water-power, and the manufacture of certain specified fibre. End of quote. Reports, etc., for 31st October, 1864, page 8, and the footnote. As soon as this primitive dominion of the new mode of production was conquered, it was found that, in the meantime, not only had many other branches of production been made to adopt the same factory system, but that manufacturers with more or less obsolete methods, such as potteries, glass-making, etc., that old-fashioned handcrafts, like baking, and finally, even that the so-called domestic industries, such as nail-making, had long since fallen as completely under capitalist exploitation as the factories themselves. Footnote. On the condition of the so-called domestic industries, specially valuable materials are to be found in the latest reports of the Children's Employment Commission. End of footnote. Legislation was, therefore, compelled to gradually get rid of its exceptional character, or, where, as in England, it proceeds after the manner of the Roman casuists, 
to declare any house in which work was done to be a factory. Footnote. Quote, the acts of last session, 1864, embrace a diversity of occupations, the customs in which differ greatly, and the use of mechanical power to give motion to machinery is no longer one of the elements necessary, as formerly, to constitute in a legal phrase a factory. End of quote. Reports, etc., for 31st October, 1864, page 8. End of footnote. Second, the history of the regulation of the working day in certain branches of production, and the struggle still going on in others in regard to this regulation, prove conclusively that the isolated labourer, the labourer as so-called free vendor of his labour-power, when capitalist production has once attained a certain stage, succumbs without any power of resistance. The creation of a normal working day is therefore the product of a protracted civil war, more or less dissembled, between the capitalist class and the working class. As the contest takes place in the arena of modern industry, it first breaks out in the home of that industry, England. Footnote. Belgium, the paradise of continental liberalism, shows no trace of this movement. Even in the coal and metal mines, laborers of both sexes and all ages are consumed in perfect so-called freedom at any period and through any length of time. Of every 1,000 persons employed there, 733 are men, 88 women, 135 boys, and 44 girls under 16. In the blast furnaces, etc., of every 1,000, 668 are men, 149 women, 98 boys, and 85 girls under 16. Add to this the low wages for the enormous exploitation of mature and immature labor power. The average daily pay for a man is two shillings eightpence. For a woman, one shilling eight pence, for a boy one shilling two and a half pence. As a result, Belgium had in 1863, as compared with 1850, nearly doubled both the amount and the value of its exports of coal, iron, etc. End of footnote. The English factory workers were the champions not only of the English, but of the modern working class generally, as their theorists were the first to throw down the gauntlet to the theory of capital. Footnote. Robert Owen, soon after 1810, not only maintained the necessity of a limitation of the working day in theory, but actually introduced the ten hours day into his factory at New Lanark. This was laughed at as a communistic utopia. So were his combination of children's education with productive labor and the cooperative society's working men, first called into being by him. Today, the first utopia is a factory act, the second figures as an official phrase in all factory acts. The third is already being used as a cloak for reactionary humbug. And a footnote. Hence the philosopher of the factory, Ure, denounces as an ineffable disgrace the English working class that they inscribed, quote, the slavery of the factory acts, end of quote, on the banner which they bore against capital, manfully striving for, quote, perfect freedom of labor, end of quote. Footnote. Ure, French translation, Philosophie des Manufactures, Paris, 1836, Volume 2, pages 39, 40, 67, 77, etc. End of footnote. France limps slowly behind England. The February Revolution was necessary to bring into the world the Twelve Hours Law, which is much more deficient than its English original. Footnote. In the Comte Rendu, of the International Statistical Congress at Paris, 1855, it is stated, quote, 
The French law, which limits the length of daily labour in factories and workshops to twelve hours, does not confine this work to definite fixed hours. For children's labour, only the work times prescribed as between 5 a.m. and 9 p.m. Therefore, some of the masters use the right which this fatal silence gives them to keep their works going without intermission, day in, day out, possibly with the exception of Sunday. For this purpose, they use two different sets of workers, of whom neither is in the workshop more than twelve hours at a time, but the work of the establishment lasts day and night. The law is satisfied, but is humanity? End of quote. Besides, quote, the destructive influence of night labor on the human organism, end of quote, stress is also laid upon, quote, the fatal influence of the association of the two sexes by night in the same badly lighted workshops, end of quote, end of footnote. For all that, the French revolutionary method has its special advantages. It once for all commands the same limit to the working day in all shops and factories without distinction, whilst English legislation reluctantly yields to the pressure of circumstances, now on this point, now on that, and is getting lost in a hopelessly bewildering tangle of contradictory enactments. Footnote. Quote, for instance, there is within my district one occupier who, within the same cartilage, is at the same time a bleacher and dyer under the Bleaching and Dyeing Works Act, a printer under the Print Works Act, and a finisher under the Factory Act. End of quote. Report of Mr. Baker in Reports, etc., for October 31, 1861, page 20. After enumerating the different provisions of these acts, and the complications arising from them, Mr. Baker says, quote, It will hence appear that it must be very difficult to secure the execution of these three acts of Parliament where the occupier chooses to evade the law. End of quote. But what is assured to the lawyers by this is lawsuits. End of footnote. On the other hand, the French law proclaims as a principle that which in England was only one in the name of children, minors, and women, and has been only recently for the first time claimed as a general right. Footnote. Thus the factory inspectors at last venture to say, quote, These objections, of capital to the legal limitation of the working day, must succumb before the broad principle of the rights of labour. There is a time when the master's right in his workman's labour ceases, and his time becomes his own even if there were no exhaustion in the question. End of quote. Report, etc., for 31st October, 1862, page 54. End of footnote. In the United States of North America, every independent movement of the workers was paralyzed so long as slavery disfigured a part of the Republic. Labor cannot emancipate itself in the white skin, where in the black it is branded. But out of the death of slavery, a new life at once arose. The first fruit of the Civil War was the eight hours agitation that ran with the seven-league boots of the locomotive from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from New England to California. The General Congress of Labor at Baltimore, August 16, 1866, declared, quote, The first and great necessity of the present, to free the labor of this country from capitalistic slavery, is the passing of a law by which eight hours shall be the normal working day in all states of the American Union, we are resolved to put forth all our strength until this glorious result is attained. End of quote. Footnote. Quote, we, the workers of Dunkirk, declare that the length of time of labor required under the present system is too great, and that, far from leaving the worker time for rest and education, it plunges him into a condition of servitude but little better than slavery. 
That is why we decide that eight hours are enough for a working day, and ought to be legally recognized as enough. Why we call to our help that powerful lever, the press, and why we shall consider all those that refuse us this help as enemies of the reform of labor and of the rights of the laborer. End of quote. Resolution of the Working Men of Dunkirk, New York State, 1866. End of footnote. At the same time, the Congress of the International Workingmen's Association at Geneva, on the proposition of the London General Council, resolved that, quote, the limitation of the working day is a preliminary condition without which all further attempts at improvement and emancipation must prove abortive. The Congress proposes eight hours as the legal limit of the working day. End of quote. Thus the movement of the working class on both sides of the Atlantic, that had grown instinctively out of the conditions of production themselves, endorsed the words of the English factory inspector R. J. Saunders. Quote, Further steps towards a reformation of society can never be carried out with any hope of success unless the hours of labor be limited and the prescribed limit strictly enforced. End of quote. Footnote. Reports, etc., for October 1848, page 112. End of footnote. It must be acknowledged that our laborer comes out of the process of production other than he entered. In the market, he stood as owner of the commodity labor-power, face to face with other owners of commodities, dealer against dealer. The contract by which he sold to the capitalist his labor-power proved, so to say, in black and white, that he disposed of himself freely. The bargain concluded, it is discovered that he was no free agent, that the time for which he is free to sell his labor-power is the time for which he is forced to sell it, that in fact the vampire will not lose its hold on him, Quote, so long as there is a muscle, a nerve, a drop of blood to be exploited. End of quote. Footnote Friedrich Engels, Locus Citato, page 5. Quote, the proceedings, the manoeuvres of capital, e.g., from 1848 to 1850, have afforded, moreover, incontrovertible proof of the fallacy of the assertion so often advanced that operatives need no protection but may be considered as free agents in the disposal of the only property which they possess, the labor of their hands and the sweat of their brows. End of quote. Reports, etc., for April 30th, 1850, page 45. Quote, free labor, if so it may be termed, even in a free country, requires the strong arm of the law to protect it. End of quote. Reports, etc., for October 31st, 1864, page 34. Quote, to permit, which is tantamount to compelling, to work fourteen hours a day with or without meals, end of quote, etc. Reports, etc., for April 30th, 1863, page 40, end of footnote. For protection against the serpent of their agonies, the laborers must put their heads together and, as a class, compel the passing of a law, an all-powerful social barrier that shall prevent the very workers from selling by voluntary contract with capital, themselves and their families, into slavery and death. Footnote. The Ten Hours Act has, in the branches of industry that come under it, quote, put an end to the premature decrepitude of the former long-hour workers. End of quote. Reports, etc., for 31st October, 1859, page 47. Quote, capital in factories can never be employed in keeping the machinery in motion beyond a limited time without certain injury to the health and morals of the laborers employed 
and they are not in a position to protect themselves. End of quote. Locusiteto, page 8. End of footnote. In place of the pompous catalogue of the inalienable rights of men, comes the modest Magna Carta of a legally limited working day, which shall make clear, quote, when the time which the worker sells is ended, and when his own begins. End of quote. Quantum mutatus ab illo. Footnote. Quote, a still greater boon is the distinction at last made clear between the worker's own time and his master's. The worker knows now when that which he sells is ended, and when his own begins, and by possessing a sure foreknowledge of this, is enabled to prearrange his own minutes for his own purposes. End of quote. Locus Hateto, page 52. Quote, by making them masters of their own time, the factory acts have given them a moral energy which is directing them to the eventual possession of political power. End of quote. Locus Hateto, page 47. With suppressed irony, and in very well-weighed words, the factory inspectors hint that the actual law also frees the capitalist from some of the brutality natural to a man who is a mere embodiment of capital, and that it has given him time for a little culture. Quote, Formerly, the master had no time for anything but money. The servant had no time for anything but labor. End of quote. Logositeto, page 48. End of footnote. End of part 3, chapter 10, section 7.